All right, let's go ahead and get started, guys. Thanks for coming out tonight. Swivel your chair around, find a pin, and uh, we're gonna be locked and loaded. We are scaling a massive mountain tonight. Uh, so find your sheet, uh, find your sheet here. Um, we're looking at a massive mountain peak tonight, so uh, we've got a short amount of time. We're gonna look at the interrelationship between the book of Hebrews and the book of Leviticus. So if this is your first time joining us, uh, all semester we're gonna be in the book of Leviticus. Uh, we, were in some, we were in Leviticus all last semester too, uh, so if you're with us, we, uh, with us then, hopefully you remember something, and hopefully what you remember is that Christ is our all-inclusive offering that we can lay our hands on, be joined to, and get the solution to all the pollution, all right? That is Christ as the reality of all the, all the, all the Old T Testament sacrifices. That's going to come up again tonight, but that's what we looked at last semester. This semester, we're doing the second half of the book. We're really picking up in chapter 8. And we're going to drive a little faster uh, because we got to get through, I think it's chapter 27. And uh, last semester, we were only doing chapter 1 through 7. So we spent a lot more detailed look. We, we looked you know, in more detail at the first half. We're going to kind of uh, drive a little faster th through the second half. All right, let's look at your uh, title here. Let's just read this title all together. Ready, set, go. Hebrews, an exposition of All right, I was tempted to call this I was tempted to call this the mountain and the jungle. The mountain and the jungle. And let me tell you why. Hebrews is a mountain of revelation. And I was thinking of Mount Everest, tallest mountain on earth, right around 30,000 feet, cruising altitude of an airplane. Uh, that's what people climb. And uh, it takes about two months to climb Mount Everest. Two months. And a lot of money. A lot of money, depending on how much... Uh, you know, guidance you want, uh, and, you know, probably you want a lot of that because you're not going to do it by yourself. So it's, you know, $100,000 in two months of your time to climb Mount Everest. Two months of preparation, planning, uh, acclimating to the uh, altitude. You have to make trips up and back, up and back, up and back, setting up your base camps, your stops. It is an expedition, to say the least. You spend two months climbing... And you know how long you get to spend on the top? 10 minutes. Two months for 10 minutes. That's because you're above what's called the death zone and you're breathing in uh, a third of the oxygen level you need to stay alive. And so you spend all this time climbing and you get to, <laughs> wow, let's get back down. <laughs> you got to scurry back down. And that is uh, what we're doing tonight. We are climbing a mountain of revelation and we've only got 10 minutes on the top uh, I don't want anyone dying tonight because we're going to be in some pretty complex uh, uh, cliff scaling and, uh, you know, shear wall uh, balancing on the ledges. Um, Hebrews is a mountain of revelation. It's Mount Everest. And from the top of Hebrews, we can actually see the entire uh, outline of the Old Testament. Hebrews is our key to unlocking the entire Old Testament. Leviticus is the jungle that's at the base of the mountain. And so when you're in Leviticus, you just feel like you're just being tangled up. You can barely move. There's no paths. Uh, you, you, just, you just get lost. And uh, that's why most people don't read Leviticus. It's so thick uh, with detail um, that it's hard to really navigate, you know, what, what are we really looking at? 
And uh, a couple years back, me and my wife went to uh, Cambodia to visit her. Her dad was living in Singapore. And we flew over to Cambodia while we were there. And Cambodia has got this really amazing temple complex called Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat, it's the largest religious complex in the world, built around 1200s or so uh, AD. The crazy thing about Angkor Wat was when Cambodia was invaded by uh, another country, they fled and they left the temple complex and went down to the southeast. And these temples were, were built in the jungle. And the jungle literally swallowed the temples up. And so they completely, they have these massive trees growing on the walls. They were completely jungleized. And they were lost for 300 years. Nobody knew they were there. They had no pictures. They had no, you know, website. Come visit Anger Wat and, you know, have a great time. They were gone. They were gone. They got swallowed by the jungle. And it wasn't until the 1700s that some French explorers rediscovered them. They were hacking their way through the jungles, and eventually they found the temple. So this is like Leviticus. There is a temple buried in Leviticus that it's hard to find. But tonight we're going to scale Mount Hebrews and look down from a heavenly perspective down through the thickness of Leviticus and see Christ. So we're looking at the mountain and the jungle tonight. Hebrews is an exposition of Leviticus. And the reason most people don't uh, delight in Leviticus is because they don't see Christ in Leviticus, all right? So hopefully y'all are impressed. I'm going to build this up a little bit before we dive into the outline. Uh, this is an amazing pairing. This is an incredible pairing, Hebrews and Leviticus. And uh, think about it like this. Hebrews, a lot of people have, a lot of uh, theologians and Bible teachers recognize Hebrews as one of the deepest and most profound books of the Bible. The deepest and most profound books of the Bible. And a lot of Christians look at Leviticus as the driest and most irrelevant book of the Bible. I mean, you're talking about cords on your shirt and what kind of fabrics, you know, don't blend your cottons and your, you know, your whatever, your nylons or don't have silk and cotton mixed in. These are some of the laws in Leviticus. Don't eat shellfish. So, you know, people are having, you know, shrimp linguine and they're like, you remember Leviticus, right? That's a no-no. And so a lot of Christians write off Leviticus because they think it's irrelevant and it's dry. It doesn't have much juice in it. And so as Christians, we neglect it. But hopefully after tonight, you see Hebrews expounds Leviticus. We're pairing the deepest book of the Bible with what you may think is the driest book, the deepest and the driest. And we're pairing the most profound book in the New Testament with maybe what you think is the most pointless book of the Old Testament. Okay, so Hebrews and Leviticus, it is an incredible combination. It's an incredible combination. Let me read you what uh, an early church teacher named Origen said. His name is Origen. Isn't that tight? Yeah. <laughs> he was not the origin of uh, church teaching, but he was a teacher in the church. He died in 253 uh, A.D., and he, he was the most... He was the most uh, exhaustive commentator of the early church. He just, he wrote commentary after commentary after commentary. And he basically set, set the tempo and the pace for the next 1,000 years. Here's what he said in his commentary on Leviticus. If you read people passages from the divine books that are good and clear, they will hear them with great joy. So if you read people a passage from the divine books that are good and clear, they will hear them with great joy. But provide someone a reading from Leviticus, and at once the listener will gag and push it away as if it were some bizarre food. 
Origen's there teaching on Leviticus, and his listeners are gagging on what they think is a bizarre dish. Okay? So anyways, but, but we should pause here a little bit because some of the most classic verses in the New Testament are from Leviticus, and you may not know it. You shall be holy because I am holy. That's in 1 Peter 1.15, but he's quoting Leviticus verbatim. You shall be holy because I'm holy. That's Leviticus straight up. How about from the Lord? Commandment number two, you scan through the Old Testament. Commandment number two, top in the charts here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. So here's some massive pillars in the New Testament. Jesus defines his whole ministry from a verse in Leviticus on the Jubilee. I have come to announce the acceptable year of the Lord, which he's referring to the year of Jubilee. Jesus defines his whole ministry from a, Le- a Leviticus perspective. We're going to have two whole messages on that, I think, at the, at the end of the semester. How about the Lord's Prayer? What's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Oh, man. No one's praying the Lord's Prayer, huh? Our Father, which art in heaven. Yeah, and, and what about him? Hallowed. Yeah, hallowed, which means holy, sanctified, you know, set apart as holy. Guess where that comes from? Leviticus. Interesting, right? So these few verses are kind of like windows, windows into a house. It's like, if, imagine you're on the outside of a mansion and you're looking through, here's, you know, you shall love, the, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a window. You're like, wow, that gives us a little insight into what Leviticus, man, maybe it's, maybe there's something in there. Then you shall be holy because I'm holy. We're outside. We're looking in the window. We're like, man, that, that sounds pretty good. Maybe there's something in this house. Hebrews is the key that opens the front door because the entire book of Hebrews is on Leviticus. It's not just a verse here or there. It's the entire book. One book is explaining another book. Okay, so we do not have time tonight. Remember, we only got 10 minutes on the top of Mount Everest. We don't have time to look around from every angle of Mount Hebrews to look down and see Leviticus. We've only got a few. So here's the big three we're going to look at tonight. And these are three massive, pretty much the main topics in Leviticus. We're looking at the sacrifices. We spent all last semester on that. We're looking at the priesthood. And we're looking at God's command to be holy. So sacrifices, priesthood, holiness. And this is basically what the book of Leviticus is about, okay? Okay, so one more analogy on Leviticus uh, before we jump into the outline. Uh, any uh, geology majors? Wow. wow. Yeah, let's, diver- let's diversify CSOC. <laughs> so does anybody study in the Jackson School of Geology? They got the little coffee shop. They got the massive globe that's like spinning on water. People seen that? Yeah. If you go over to the little uh, rinky-dink coffee shop over there, you're, you're standing in line. Anybody look right? There's a, there's a pedestal there, and there's a big rock on that. There's a big rock. You remember that rock? That's a geode. That's a geode. It's a massive, it's probably from the floor to here. It's a massive geode. And what a geode is, it's real crusty and nasty. It's a rock on the outside. It looks like, looks like it's nothing. You crack it open on the inside, and it's a sparkling gem. And there's a massive geode there in the geology building. That is another way to think of Leviticus. You look from the outside, it just looks crusty. It looks crusty. 
Why would you read that? Once you crack it open, you find Christ is the sparkling gem. And Hebrews cracks open Leviticus. So hopefully I'm wetting y'all's appetite. Are y'all starting to get a taste for these, this pairing tonight? We're doing a, a culinary pairing of Leviticus and Hebrews. All right, so let's go ahead and read our first little point here. Ready, set, go. Yeah, types and shadows. And let's read Hebrews 8. Ready, set, go. Okay, so underline example and shadow. Y'all see that? This is in Hebrews here. And those who offer gifts according to the law, these are the priests. These are the priests. So the writer of Hebrews uh, right here in chapter 8 is telling us what they were doing. I mean, they were doing this. The Exodus is dated to about right at 1490 B.C., 1490 B.C., So we're talking roughly 1,500 years up until Jesus that these priests are doing their thing. They're offering sacrifices, and they offered sacrifices every single day. In the morning, during the day, at night, they're going into the holy place, they're burning incense, they're baking bread, they're sweaty, they're grimy, they're bloody. I mean, they're basically in the kitchen of God's house. And and Leviticus says the offerings were God's food. So these are God's personalized cooks, and they're just cooking all day for God. This was was central to Israel's identity and existence because in their story, God had just redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. God had descended as a flame of fire on Mount Sinai and opened up his heart to them, what he wanted from them as a people, They built his house at the end of Exodus. Leviticus, he moved in. And the offerings were the way that God's people could dwell with the holy God. So they're just, that is just standard. That is your part of your identity as a Jew. The writer of Hebrews comes along and says, all of that was just playing with shadows. That wasn't the body. That was a shadow. And a shadow is... Something that complete, you know, that exactly, that exactly mirrors your shape and your size and your outline, but it's not you, but it's attached to you. And if you follow the shadow back, it will lead you to the person. Okay? So the writer of Hebrews is saying that's what's actually going on in Leviticus. All those offerings, all of that work, all of that um, cooking for God and serving God and worshiping God, and being faithful to God, what he showed us, that was actually a shadow. That wasn't the thing itself. So another writer, Paul, picked up on this same thought in Colossians 2.17. So let's read this verse. Ready, set, go. Okay, so this is the exact same thought, except here it explicitly tells us what the body is. The body of all the Old Testament shadows that we see in Leviticus is Christ. Everything we read in Leviticus is a shadow that we should be able to follow back and anchor to the person and work of Christ. So Leviticus is a book of shadows. The reality of all the things we're seeing in Leviticus, we need to all connect them to Christ. Connect the burnt offering to Christ. Connect the sin offering to Christ. Connect the garments to Christ. Connect the ointment to Christ. 
Connect the command to be holy to Christ. Connect the diet to Christ. Connect the festivals to Christ. Connect the devotion of a field and a land and of yourself to Christ. All of Leviticus is a massive shadow connected to the person of Christ. That's the gem in Leviticus. This is an incredible, profound thought, okay? So let me give you, I didn't, I didn't have the space to put these down, but, but this is not just a one random isolated verse in Hebrews that makes this claim. Here's a few other verses that say the same thing. Uh, there's the word figure. There's the word shadow used twice. The word copy. Um, there's the word the true. He talks about the true tabernacle, indicating that wasn't the real deal. The greater and more perfect tabernacle And I love this one, Hebrews 9, 10. These things were imposed until the time of Reformation. You know when the first Reformation was? It wasn't 1517 when Martin Luther nailed the theses on the door of the church in in Wittenberg. The first Reformation was the coming of Christ. He reformed the entire Old Testament. He reconfigured it. He reshaped it. He didn't chunk the stuff away. Think of it as like a a mosaic. He just rearranged the pieces so we could see a different picture. Wow. It was a dog. It was a sacrifice. It was a goat. He just rearranged it through his coming, and now we see Christ. Isn't that awesome? It was a reformation. It was a radical change. Okay, so, man, this is so incredible. Are y'all getting a taste for Leviticus? Y'all getting a little view from the mountain? Okay, so let's go ahead and, and, and look a little bit closer here what we got. Let's read uh, this first big bold. Ready, set, go. A better sacrifice. All right, read it again. A sacrifice. Leviticus is a book of sacrifices. 24-7, they're offering sacrifices. Even at night, they had a sacrifice burning all night, every night. They had a sacrifice going all night, every night. They woke up first thing in the morning, guess what they did? Offered another sacrifice. That's the burnt offering. They offered it every morning, every night. It lasted all night. They woke up again, offered another burnt offering. That's just the burnt offering. While that's going, they're also offering the sin offering. Every time someone shows up and says, I sinned, they go, all right, let's do do the whole thing over again. In Hebrews, the author says, we have a better sacrifice. We have a better sacrifice. And we're about to see in this section, that sacrifice is Jesus. And we're about to see in this section, why is Jesus a better sacrifice? All right, let's read Hebrews 10.1. Ready, set, go. Yeah, that's, a, that's just pulling a Chris Hall right there. In Hebrews, in Hebrews, the writer says, yeah, all that stuff y'all were doing for God for 2,000 years, it didn't work. It didn't work. Y'all were doing it day after day, night after night for 1,500 years, and it changed nothing. So circle the words, can never, right there in line two. Can never. And then underline perfect. 
right there at the end of line two, perfect. It can never change you. Perfect here means bring you to completion, not make you, you know, sinlessly perfect and never have a mistake ever again, but spiritually, uh, quote, quote, spiritually, developmentally, you are fully grown, fully developed, fully mature. So a lot of times the, uh, some versions translate this exact same word perfect as mature. Be a full-grown man. Be a perfect man. Be a mature man. Okay? So he's saying all that offering didn't change anything. Oh, no. Didn't change anything. All right, let's read the next one. Hebrews 10, 11 through 12 and 14. Ready, set, go. Say, wow. wow. Okay, let's do a little work here. Circle can never. We got it there again. Can never. We got another can never here. Underline remove sins. So you see the entire sacrificial system that defined Israel as a nation and related them to the holy and righteous and glorious God. That entire setup was handicapped by two impossibilities. The whole thing was ordained by God as a shadow. Remember, it's just a shadow. It doesn't actually affect the reality. And it's handicapped by two can-nevers. It's handicapped by two impossibilities. What can it not do, number one? Perfect. What can't it do? What, you know, I want to say what can't it not do, but... I'm lost in how many negatives I got there. What can't it do, number two? Remove sins. So all of that work, you, you do not change within at all. You still got sin, and that's why tomorrow, guess what you're doing? You're showing up with another bull. I mean, they must have had big, big flocks back then, because it's like, there goes another goat, you know? <laughs> Don't name your goats, you know? Don't name your goats, because you're going to be saying bye-bye to bye-bye to Baba. Yeah, my son's obsessed with babas right now, goats. He's one and, one and a half. Anyways, Jude would be sad to see all the babas going away. <laughs> Sorry, son, another sin. We got to... Anyways, I don't know how big their flocks were, but every day you're sinning. So guess what you're doing? You're offering, offering, offering. And part of this was to touch their heart with their, fi <laughs> with their financial uh, relationship with their, with their goats. So eventually, you know, that was in state a lot of people recognized to touch them. It's like, okay, I got to give up something that's valuable. So there's real contrition and real repentance. But it didn't change you. It didn't change you. So it can't perfect you. And number one, it, it actually can't remove those sins. So those sins, I mean, you know, you think about, you know, you uh, drink coffee. You know, you're never, you're never supposed to buy a white couch. Does anybody's parents have a white couch? Yeah. Has it got any marks on it? Inevitably, you're going to spill something. Coffee, chocolate, you know, I don't know what it is. After 1,500 years, how discolored do you think the spiritual couch of Israel was? It was completely black. It was completely black. Not one stain had ever been removed. It had just been 
let's throw another pillow on the couch, you know? Let's get a slip cover, you know? Let's, uh, let's move it into the bedroom so no one sees it. All those stains, all those sins were there. They had, you know, let's flip the cushion over, you know? They were, they were there. They had never been removed. They had never been purged. They had never been purified. They were just kind of swept under the rug. And God said, that's okay. I'll do that. I'll let you do that. But ultimately, we need to take care of this, okay? So all of that was a shadow of a person who came named Jesus Christ. So look at this. I love this. You know, if we pray over these verses, I promise you, you will get electrified. But this one, but this one, all those, they stand daily. The priests were always standing because they were always working. And this is a big contrast here. Look, every priest stands daily. But this one, you know, they're offering the same sacrifices year by year. This one, he shows up, he offers one sacrifice and sits down. He was the first priest to take a seat. I mean, they eventually sat down, but not when they were on the job. Not when they were on the job. This priest did what all those priests for 1,500 years could never do. He removed sins by one offering, and he perfected, look at this, by one offering, he has perfected forever. Isn't that incredible? Imagine trying to solve an incredibly complex math problem, an engineering problem, and someone in your class shows up and looks at it for about five seconds and goes, oh yeah, the answer is four. I'm going to go chill over here, you know? You're like, how did you do that? How did you do that? Well, the Lord didn't just solve a complicated math problem. He didn't just kind of unlock a mystery in the universe that was unsolvable. He removed something that previous to him was irremovable. It was irremovable. And he completed something that before him was incomplete. Incredible, incredible. Okay, so uh, you, see the can, you see the can-nevers here? Isn't that awesome? Very, very clear. Okay, so he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And part of, you know, part of Leviticus is showing us two realities in this universe, something on man's side and something on God's side. What, is it, what do you think it shows? What do you think it indicates if, you know, a country has... Um, I, was, I was looking up the other day because of uh, some of the news stuff. How many laws are in the United States? How many laws are on the books? And this one website I was reading, well, maybe you know, but this one, one website I was reading says, yeah, there's, a ton, there's thousands of thousands of thousands. And it was something like gun regulation alone has like 22,000 laws or something. There are just an incredible amount of laws. What do you think that says about the people in a country if we have to have that many regulations? I mean, we got to tell people, you know, you can't do that. And we're telling people you can't do things like kill people. I'm not telling people you can't, like, you know, leave your chair not pushed in. What do you think it says about a country if we have, if we have to have that many regulations? And people keep showing up to court to keep paying fines. Yep. 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 What do you think that says about the people? Yeah, exactly. 
One thing Leviticus is showing us is that sin is an invasive species. So Leviticus is showing us the invasiveness of sin in humanity. It's like bamboo. It's just, it's just spreading uncontrollably, uncontrollably. And so Leviticus is so detailed, it's that detailed thick jungle, because it's trying to cover all of these different situations you may be in. Man, if you read Leviticus 18 alone, it's insane how detailed the one topic is. I can tell you what it is. That's on man's side. On God's side, yeah, don't look at Leviticus 18 right now. On God's side, you know what it shows us? Okay, so Leviticus shows us man has a problem with sin that is invasive. Leviticus on God's side shows us the pervasiveness of God's holiness. We have the invasiveness of human sin and the pervasiveness of God's, God's holiness. His holiness lays claim to every aspect of Israel's existence. And obviously by extension, since Peter quotes this to us, to our existence. Every area of your life, God's holiness lays claim to it. It pervades every detail, how you drive, how you have, you know, how you dress, what you say, where you go, who you associate with, how long you hang out with those people at certain times of, of the day or night. God's holiness wants to lay claim to that. And, and this is basically the problem of, Lev, of Leviticus. We can't do it because of sin, so we're always offering sacrifices. The Lord shows up, he offers one sacrifice for sin and does what all those priests could never do. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right, let's read Hebrews 9, 26. Ready, set, go. So square, big square, putting away of sin. This is the big point in section one, putting away of sin. That's the better sacrifice. Y'all see that? Is it clear? It's a better sacrifice because it did what all the sacrifices before him could never do. It put away sin. And it's through the sacrifice, hard, double underline, squiggle, just get that paper. The sacrifice of himself. Himself. We have one person now who replaces all the Old Testament sacrifice. It's himself. So you see how the writer of Hebrews, he just split that geode and just showed us both halves, and now we've got a sparkling revelation of Christ. It's himself. He is the sacrifice. That's why it's better. Christ is the sacrifice. That's why it works. Okay, we're going to move into section two here, but as we transition, I want you to think about this phrase we just had. He sat down. He sat down forever. Y'all remember that phrase? You may think because of that phrase, that phrase sat down, you may think that means Jesus is just chilling. He's not doing anything anymore. He's sitting down. So he's done, right? He, he did his work. He did his job. He went back to heaven and he took a seat. I mean, he didn't say, whew, because it didn't exhaust him. You know, he's the eternal God. But he sat down and he's like, I'm done. I'm just chilling. I'm just sitting. I'm waiting for something to happen. A lot of people think he's waiting for a clock to tick down to a certain number and go, oh, it's time to go back. All right. <laughs> That's what a lot of people think. Jesus is up there hanging out with the Father and uh, talking about what a great job they, you know, great plan. But you shouldn't think that Jesus is sitting down like he's sitting down on a couch. Okay? 
Sitting down on a couch means you're chilling. Jesus is not sitting on a couch in heaven. What is he sitting on? The throne. That means he has completed the work of redemption, but he is intensely active in administrating. And he is administrating the entire universe for a very particular purpose as a greater high priest to save us, his people, to the uttermost. Isn't that awesome? So he sat down, but he's very active on the throne as a high priest. Okay, so let's read a greater high priest. Ready, set, go. A greater high priest. A greater priest, yeah. A greater priest. Let's read Hebrews uh, 7, 11 and 16. Ready, set, go. Oh, man, I'm going to have to speed up here because oxygen is running out on Mount Everest. Okay. Under uh, circle perfection. This is the central question in chapter 7. This is the central question in chapter 7. This is such a profound thought. We're just going to be able to glimpse it, and uh, y'all can talk about it wherever with whoever, study groups, Bible studies, home meetings later. This is so incredible. The question is, if perfection is through the Levitical priesthood, what need? What need was there that a different priest should arise who's of a different order? Okay, so I know some of you guys are already getting lost, so we're going to try and keep this simple. But in the Bible, uh, at Mount Sinai, God established the order of the priesthood. And that order was by biological descent. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. That's one of the 12 tribes. And Aaron there is the head high priest of the tribe of Levi at that time. But then it's all his sons and down are the priests. So this is like, you know, priestly succession. And it's biological. But the writer of Hebrews has got a little bit of a question. This is so, this is so incredible. He is reading Psalm 110. He's reading Psalm 110. And there is this strange prophecy about the Messiah. Everyone recognized, all the Jews recognized that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. It was talking about the coming Christ. And it says, God has sworn forever that you are a priest, the Messiah, according to the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And the writer of Hebrews is really stumped by this. He's saying... This throws off the whole Old Testament. And it indicates that some other priest, not of Aaron's descent, is going to arise, and that is going to be a priest forever. That priest is going to terminate the priesthood of Aaron and replace it and do something more and do something different. Okay, this is the profound like, you know, reference point that this writer is looking through and saying, what is going on here? And then he says, he has been appointed not according to the law, underlying law, but according to an indestructible life. This is another very big change. A, a transfer from law 
to an indestructible life. Whose life do you think that's talking about? Yeah? God's life. And he's a priest forever, okay? Oh, man. Flip to the back. We're just going to glance at this. This is uh, illustrating the argument in Hebrews 7. It's it's a really complex argument. Uh, But this is what's going on. So we got Mel on the left. That's Melchizedek. Couldn't fit that in that small of a circle. We've got Abraham on the right. And so Melchizedek, the only time he appears in the Bible is once in actual storyline, in actual existence. In Genesis 14, that's on the left. He shows up for three verses, blesses Abraham, and disappears. That's all we hear about him until Psalm 110. And strangely enough, there's a prophecy that a priest from his order is going to rise up. And that's going to be the eternal priesthood. The only problem with Melchizedek is he's not our typical kind of priest. He never offered a sacrifice for sin. He showed up to Abraham after he fought and rescued Lot from the kings of Sodom during a war. And he gave him bread and wine. And he blessed him. And it says he was the first priest in biblical history. He was the priest of the Most High God. It's a very strange story. And if you read Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews is really camping out on this story. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. Okay, but on the, in the middle line here, we've got Levi and the tribes. And out of Levi, we've got Aaron. And so all these arrows is showing you the order here. All the tribes, they tithe 10% to Aaron and his priests because he's doing the service for them. So they tithe for him, and he offers sacrifices for them. And he's greater than them. The priesthood is greater than the common people. But the the author of Hebrews is making a point. There's a very interesting detail here. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And it's, it's, it's without a doubt that if you bless somebody in the Old Testament, that proves that you're greater than them by, by definition. You don't walk into the Oval Office with the president you know, that you may respect. Just think of your ideal president. You don't walk up to the Queen of England and bless them. Say, yes, I bless you. You don't do that. You, you make sure your tie's straight and you wait in line and, you know, nice to meet you. Yeah. You're not in control there. You are, you are getting a blessing by being in that person's presence. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham is the person of all the earth who has God's promises. He's the most important person in the world at that time. Melchizedek shows up and blesses him. The writer of the Hebrew goes, that means Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. But then the incredible turn he makes in the argument is, you you can kind of say, because Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 tribes, one of those tribes was Levi, who had Aaron, who was the priest, Aaron's genetic material was in Abraham. At that moment, that Melchizedek was blessing Abraham, which means... Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. And when Abraham tithed 10% of all those spoils of war to Melchizedek, that means Aaron, who received tithes from everyone else, is made to pay tithes to someone else. It's incredible. So this chart, you can look at this later. The whole point, though, here is it's showing us Melchizedek is greater than Aaron for three reasons. Number one, He has priestly priority. He's the first priest. So talk about law. 
he is the precedent case. He's the case that we defer to with priesthood. Number two, he has priestly superiority. And we're about to look at that. He is superior in what he can do as a priest. And number three, he has priestly eternity. He is a priest forever. His priesthood never ends. He never dies because he is the eternal son of God himself, appointed by the power of an indestructible life. Okay, priority, superiority, eternity. Let's finish up here and see what Melchizedek can do for us. Let's read Hebrews 7.25. Ready, set, go. Okay, now let's read this verse like we're incredibly excited because we now know what this verse means. Ready, set, go. Hence also he is able to save to the uttermost those who come forward to God through him since he lives always to intercede for them. Okay, big square on save to the uttermost. That's the big point here. He is able. He is able. What do you do when you realize your inability? Remember, the whole Old Testament is demonstrating man's inability because of sin. Can't deal with the problems. What do you do when you realize your inability? You need to come forward to him who is able. He is able to save you to the uttermost. He is able not just to remove sin, but to bring you fully into the enjoyment of Christ's life for your full transformation for your maturity in life, and Hebrews terms that perfection. He's able to save to perfection, to the uttermost. Isn't that incredible? So the key word for the first part is offering. He's offering, right? Offering for sins. Key word for the second part is he's saving to the uttermost. Okay, so then let's read Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. Real sweet verse. Ready, set, go. So I I rephrase this as the positive, just so no one was thrown off. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. What a high priest we have. The Lord's response is our high priest to weakness is mercy. It's grace. And it is the supply of an indestructible life that is able to save you to the uttermost. All we need to do is, number one, realize this, and number two, be making nonstop motion toward our, toward our high priest. Lord, here I come. I come again. Lord, I open. Save me to the uttermost. Minister bread and wine, the elements of the Lord's Supper, which signify Christ himself and his process. Lord, minister yourself into me as my food supply, as my drink, as my life, as my enjoyment. Lord, your life is able. Lord, here I come. Isn't that awesome? Every weakness is an opportunity to come forward for timely help. And it's awesome. He's not just touched with the knowledge of your weakness. He's touched with the feeling of your weakness. He feels what you feel in your weakness. He doesn't just understand the problem. He feels the problem. 
And immediately when you have a weakness, he enters into full sympathy, not with cliche phrases like hang in there. You can do it. You know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm cheering you on. No, he doesn't cheapen your weaknesses like that. He opens up the storehouses of God and ministers bread and wine. He ministers to you an indestructible life that can save you to the uttermost. Isn't that incredible? All right, let's finish up here with a new and living way. Let's read Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10. Ready, set, go. Okay, so coming down from the mountain here, what we saw tonight was Hebrews is an exposition of Leviticus showing us a, a greater sacrifice that does what the Old Testament can never do, a greater priest who not only takes away your sin, but adds to you the life of God for your full perfection. And he introduces, initiates an entire new way to relate to God. It's called the new and living way. And he sets aside the old law as weak and unprofitable and invites you in. God is inviting you in tonight to the Holy of Holies itself, the room that was available only to one person one time a year. He's saying, I want you to make constant motion to me. Come forward. When you have weakness, you still have full right and can exercise absolute boldness to come just as you are and call on my name, open yourself, and join me and that will save you to the uttermost. Isn't that incredible? What a great high priest we have. Okay, so this is where we're going to end. Let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open it up for some sharing, all right? Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Lord, we thank you that you are such a high priest. Lord, you're exactly what we need. Lord, we praise you in your divine ability, Lord. Lord, you dealt with the problem of our sin once and for all. Lord, and you are constantly supplying your divine indestructible life for our enjoyment. Lord, cause us to remember this, Lord, and cause us to constantly come forward to enjoy you. Amen.